Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio and I love all things tech. And in our last episode, we looked at how co-founders Edwin Pridham and Peter Jensen not only kept their young company alive by creating a moving coil loudspeaker, but they also came up with the name of the company, that is Magnavox, after first calling the loudspeaker that name. So originally Magnavox was the name for a type of technology, a loudspeaker. We also learned about how the two engineers created noise-canceling microphones for use in aircraft during World War I, as well as how the company tried to get into the consumer electronics business and the young business of radio once the war was over. Uh, We also learned that in 1925, after having disagreements with leadership, Peter Jensen, one of the co-founders, left the company, and he would go on to found his own companies and later on pass away in 1961. But back to Magnavox and the mid to late 1920s. The company was actually to on pretty unsteady ground in 1925. It wasn't just because Jensen had left. Uh, Magnavox had overestimated the demand for radio sets in the early days and had overproduced radios. So it expanded operations. It had opened up a warehouse and distribution center in New York. But by the end of 1925, with the costs of operation so high and the radio business so cutthroat, Magnavox chose to close those New York offices because those offices weren't really serving a purpose because the company was finding it hard to sell consumer radios. There's just too many on the market and there wasn't enough you know, demand there yet. And the business owners began to consider alternatives to having a base of operations in California as well. There was no denying that California was a huge market. A lot of people live there. But shipping components like copper wire, which largely came out of the Midwestern states in America, uh, and and shipping them all the way across the, the states to California in order to manufacture stuff, that was really expensive. Now, the company also hit a stumbling block when it started to produce its own vacuum tubes. The company was trying to get off the dependence of other manufacturing companies and to become more self-sufficient and thus produce all the different components that would go into things like a radio. The earliest Magnavox tubes had a tendency to short out, which is not good. Like some of them wouldn't even last longer than a few hours of uh, operation. Later tubes continued to have some reliability issues, and this gave Magnavox a bad reputation among distributors and independent radio manufacturers. They realized that if they built their radios and they used Magnavox tubes as amplifiers, that they would frequently stop functioning not long after they were first put in use. That's not that's not good. And this was bad enough that by mid-1927, the board of directors for Magnavox ordered the tube production facilities to shut down. Uh, They also shut down consumer radio production. So for the next decade or so, Magnavox didn't make consumer radios. Instead, it would make components for independent radio companies, and they just sold those directly to manufacturers. Now, the reason for that shutdown was that Magnavox still had more radios produced than it could sell. They were literally taking up space in warehouses. In 1925, the company had built radio sets that had five tubes in them for the purposes of tuning, you know, receiving, tuning, and amplifying signals. And despite the fact that analysts had predicted that people would want six-tube radio sets that had you know, greater functionality by 1926, 
Magnavox said, eh, we're going to stick with the five tube design. The reason they did that was that they were worried that if they moved to a six tube design for the new models, no one would ever buy the old sets that were sitting around in warehouses. And so, you know, Magnavox would be stuck with all these obsolete radios. But then no one bought the new five tube sets that Magnavox produced. So it was an even bigger loss, right? Instead of a warehouse filled with old five tube sets uh, while the six tube sets were selling, there were warehouses full, full, filled with even more five tube sets. And all told, Magnavox lost around a million dollars due to the issues with tube reliability and performance of their radio sales. Uh, and remember, we're talking about the 1920s here. A million dollars is a lot of money. Don't get me wrong. But when you factor in inflation, it's an astronomical amount of money. Uh, so not only was it an expensive blow, but it also tarnished Magnavox's reputation. So it would make it harder for Magnavox to win back the confidence of distributors and manufacturers in the future. Magnavox also tried to branch out and diversify beyond loudspeakers and radios. In 1924, the company introduced an electric heater. Uh, electric heaters work on a pretty simple principle, which is that of electrical resistance. So Every conductor, every material that is electrically conductive under normal conditions has some amount of electrical resistance. And that's kind of like friction in the world of electricity. Electrical resistance depends on a few factors. Uh, first and foremost, the material itself. So, for example, copper is a really good electrical conductor and has a fairly low resistance. Silver is an even better electrical conductor. In fact, silver would be a great conductor if it weren't for the fact that one, it's pretty scarce, and two, people think it's pretty, so they want to turn it into jewelry and stuff. But, uh, you know, the material is not just the only factor that, you know, ends up affecting resistance. The gauge or thickness of a wire also matters. Uh, thin wires, which uh, somewhat paradoxically on, on casual glance have a higher gauge, they have greater electrical resistance than thicker wires uh, or wires that have a low gauge. And um, again, that might seem counterintuitive in the gauge factor, right? Like a 16-gauge wire is actually thinner than a 12-gauge wire. Anyway, the thicker the wire or cable, the lower the electrical resistance. Other things, by the way, can also change electrical resistance. For example, if you were to supercool a good conductor like copper, in other words, if you were to reduce the temperature of the copper to close to absolute zero, you can reduce or even eliminate electrical resistance entirely. This is what facilities like the Large Hadron Collider do. Uh, it's kind of like a playground slide, if you want to think of it that way. So the surface of a slide resists stuff sliding down it to some degree, right? Like you might slide down a slide and you go like, oh, it's kind of stop and start. On a hot day, you might just stick to it. Um, so you can slide down, but you feel the friction between you and the slide. But let's say you were to coat that slide in, I don't know, baby oil. You would drastically reduce the friction and kids on that playground would just zoom right off that slide. Uh, by the way, don't do that. You'll hurt people. Don't hurt people. But anyway, even with the baby oil, you'd still have some friction, but it would be much, much less than normal and you would slide much faster kind of similar when we're talking about uh, electrical resistance. But let's get back to electric heaters. All right, so electric current runs through a conductive material, which again has some amount of electrical resistance. Well, that resistance means that some of that electrical energy converts into heat. 
Now, typically, we think of this as waste. Uh, the electronics heat up and the heat gets released into the environment, and we don't typically do anything with that extra heat. Uh, in fact, electronics like computers and such typically have fans in them to help disperse the heat that's generated through electrical resistance, because if electrical components overheat, they typically fail. An electric heater, however, makes heat through electrical resistance on purpose. The electric circuits in an electric heater have resistors built into them specifically so that they heat up and convert more of the electric current into heat. The resistors are made of materials that can withstand high temperatures for a long time, so they don't break down uh, due to this heating process. Uh, the same is true for the elements that are in an electric toaster or in an electric oven. And that's how electric heaters work in a nutshell. All right, back to some of the other products that Magnavox was making around this time. There was also an on-demand water heater, which you would mount directly onto a faucet, heating the water just before it came out of the pipes and through the faucet itself. Uh, this, by the way, works in a very similar way to an electric heater. You have pipes that are surrounded by electric or sometimes gas-powered heating elements. And so when you want hot water, these elements turn on and they get really hot and the water passing through the pipes picks up some of that thermal energy and heats up so that eventually the water comes out hot. The company also created a laying cage for chickens and apparently also created an automatic egg cooker. Uh, these designs never really went into full production, so they were in very limited runs as far as I can tell. And I wasn't able to find much information on them uh, before I went to record this episode. So I wish I could tell you more about an automatic egg cooker from Magnavox, but I don't have that info. One item that did come out that was successful was the Magnalux adjustable lamp which was a desk lamp that was on an articulated arm. And it looks a lot like common desk lamps of today, you know, like the lamps that have the hinged arm in them so that you can position them in different ways. Magnavox made one of those that was pretty successful. But the bread and butter from Magnavox remained the loudspeaker. The company continued to sell cone-based loudspeakers. Uh, this was the backbone of their business. Speakers were what the company really... Uh, you know, made their name on, literally, and still were the most important product they were creating. Uh, they weren't generally meant for the average consumer. They weren't selling these to customers directly. They were selling them to other companies. Uh, like, they became the component of choice for several independent radio manufacturing companies. So you might buy a radio set that has a different brand on it, but it had Magnavox speakers in it. They did, however, try to create a retail market for consumer speakers. By the time of 1929 to 1930, the leaders of Magnavox realized that they needed to change operations. Their main customers were now independent radio manufacturers who were purchasing Magnavox speakers to go into their radio sets, and they were mostly located in the Midwest of the United States. And as I mentioned earlier, Copper Cable also primarily was coming out of the Midwest. So in 1929, Magnavox opened up an assembly plant in Chicago, Illinois, with the goal of shifting operations to the Midwest. Then the stock market crashed. Now, this had a massive effect across nearly every industry, not just in the United States, but in the world. Magnavox was forced to go through a company reorganization to stay afloat. The leaders decided to shut down the California operations, and they moved everything to Chicago. Uh, 45 employees would actually make that move, although 
almost all of them would end up leaving the company over the following couple of years, and Magnavox would end up hiring all new people to work the company. Magnavox would relocate again, however, not long after relocating to Chicago. This time they moved to Fort Wayne, Indiana. That's where the company set up a new manufacturing facility, and it wouldn't produce consumer products for several more years. Instead, it focused on tech that would go into products coming out of other manufacturers. In 1930, Magnavox founded the Magnavox Company Limited. You might wonder why it did that. This has to do with the fact that the earlier incorporation of Magnavox was out of the state of Arizona. So even though the company headquarters were located in California, the leaders chose to incorporate in Arizona. Well, the business leaders now wanted to switch this to Delaware. And you might wonder why that's so. I mean, if you were to just look at a list of Fortune 500 companies in the United States, you would see that more than half of them are incorporated in Delaware. Delaware is not a big state, and it has less than a million people living in it. So you might wonder, what the heck is going on here? Well, the big reason is that Delaware leads the U.S. when it comes to laws that define what corporations can and cannot do. Plus, Delaware has a special court called the Court of Chancery that only focuses on cases involving corporate law. So cases appear before a judge. There's no jury trial. It's just a judge. And they get fast-tracked into that system. So that means there's fewer delays compared to other court systems. If you were in a different state and you had to bring a matter to court, you would be put on a waiting list along with every other case that was being tried by those courts. But because Delaware has the specific court for corporate law matters, things are much faster. So being incorporated in Delaware, even if the company's headquarters are in some other state, has legal advantages. Anyway, the Magnavox Company Limited became a holding company. It purchased all the stock from the Magnavox Company that was incorporated in Arizona. So effectively, it shifted the incorporation to Delaware. So this was an example of jumping through some legal hoops to change the incorporation status of the company. Uh, Magnavox Company Limited didn't really do anything. It was just a holding company for the Magna Magnavox Company Incorporated. That was the company that was actually doing the manufacturing. Around this time, Magnavox also acquired part of the AMRAD Corporation. Uh, AMRAD stands for Amateur Radio Research and Development. It had previously merged with the Crosley Radio Corporation, which is a fascinating company in its own right. Uh, Crosley Radio made home radio sets, including some budget models, but by the late 1920s, the AMRAD division had very little to do, uh, and this kind of gets back into that oversaturation problem in the radio industry. And after the stock market crashed, the AMRAD division effectively shut down. So Magnavox purchased part of the AMRAD division and brought it into the fold of Magnavox. Uh, AMRAD mostly created components for radios, including tubes that would be used, like gas tubes that would be used, rectifiers uh, in radio. So Magnavox supplemented its own capabilities with this acquisition. In 1934, Magnavox purchased a stake of ownership in a company called Electroacoustics Products, located out of New York. Uh, the company created stuff like the Illustravox. And you might wonder what the heck that was. Well, the Illustravox was a combination phonograph, that's the vox or voice, and film strip projector. 
presumably the Illustra part. It looked a lot like a film projector that had a record turntable smacked on top of it. So you would load a film into the projector, which would indicate where you were, when you were to put the needle down on the accompanying phonograph that had the soundtrack for the film strip. And then you would play the audio back along with the projected film. Now, obviously, getting it just right was kind of an art in itself so that the sound and images would match up. And they were used for a lot of stuff like training films and that kind of thing. The acquisition of this company would mean that Magnavox was poised to return to the consumer market by 1936-1937. Electroacoustics products would initially be a subsidiary of Magnavox. And in 1937, Magnavox introduced a tabletop radio unit designated as High Fidelity. We'll talk about what that means after this quick break. All right, it's time to talk High Fidelity. And by that, I don't mean the Nick Hornby novel uh, or the movie adaptation of that novel starring John Cusack or the Broadway musical adaptation, or the TV series adaptation. No, we're talking the concept of high fidelity. So usually, though not always, when you record a sound, what you want the recorded version of the sound to sound like is to be as close to the original sound as you can possibly make it. You are recreating the original sound through playback. But there are a lot of things that can interfere with the reproduced sound, and it it can make it fall short. The recording itself could be faulty. That would be a big problem. Uh, There could be issues with the playback device's wiring, or the speakers might not be capable of playing back the sound without introducing distortion. Now, the word fidelity describes how pure a reproduced sound is. That is, a high-fidelity experience is one in which there is little or no distortion introduced into the experience of the sound so that you get a more pure playback experience. If you listen to recordings of old gramophone or phonograph playback devices, you've probably heard tinny, warbly sounds that are interesting, but they're clearly, you know, they're not the identical to the original performance. You know, it's it, you're getting some components in there that were not intended necessarily. By the late 1930s, companies were refining the components in playback devices and recording devices, and they were ferreting out the the things that were introduced distortion. This led to the marketing concept of high fidelity. And to be clear, it's not just a marketing concept, but high fidelity or hi-fi became a way to say, this audio device makes sound real good. In 1937, Magnavox filed to reorganize with the federal government under the Bankruptcy Act, and the reorganization allowed the Magnavox Company Incorporated, which remember, that's the subsidiary of the Magnavox Company Limited. Magnavox Company Incorporated is the company that actually makes stuff. Well, they were then able to absorb Electroacoustics Products Company and merge it directly with Magnavox Company Incorporated. So what this means is the version of Magnavox, what actually made stuff, absorbed the subsidiary and gobbled it on up, while the holding company that doesn't make stuff remained the same. This was also when Frank Fryman would become a vice president of Magnavox. Now, Fryman had founded Electroacoustics Products years earlier. He, he was the head of that company when Magnavox acquired it as a subsidiary. So he joined Magnavox in the process of the merger, and he would 
become a vice president of Magnavox. And he'll be a very important part of our story a little bit later on, too. Now, the corporate structure became a little bit simpler a few years later in 1942. That's when Magnavox Company Limited, that is the holding company, what doesn't make anything, changed its name to the Magnavox Company. Meanwhile, the Magnavox Company Incorporated, as in the part of the company what made things, dissolved. So now there was just the Magnavox Company. It was no longer a holding company. Now that was everything. It was an electronics and components manufacturing company. So we've simplified things dramatically at this point from a corporate structure point of view. In 1941, Magnavox introduced the first of its FM tuners, which had the name of CR-158, because these model names, they're great. Really easy to remember. Now, keep in mind, AM radio uses a carrier wave of a specific frequency, somewhere between 540 to 1640 kilohertz, and uh, you encode information on this carrier wave by varying or modulating the amplitude of that wave. So if you were to visualize a, a, a wave plotted on a chart, this would mean that you are changing the height of the peaks and the depth of the troughs. And by doing this, you can encode information on top of a carrier wave. And by demodulating it, uh, by essentially taking the carrier wave out of it, you're left with the modulation part that, uh, that represents the original information, in this case, audio, like, you know, radio waves. So FM radio, that is frequency modulation. That means we take a carrier wave, uh, this time in the 88 to 108 megahertz range, and we vary or modulate the frequency of the wave to encode information on those waves. FM radio had better audio quality or fidelity, and it first had emerged in the 1930s, but it took a while for companies to start creating consumer radios that had FM tuning capability to them. This was also around the time that the United States got involved in World War II. And again, like with the First World War, companies in America began shifting focus to create products and components to support the war effort. Uh, Magnavox was no different and, in fact, received the first Navy E award that was given to an electronics manufacturer that happened in 1942. What was Magnavox producing? Well, largely it kept on making the stuff it was known for, loudspeakers and the components needed to drive them. And those were incredibly useful in military vehicles like large ships and submarines and aircraft. At the end of the war, Magnavox refocused on the consumer market. And the post-World War II era would really be the golden years for Magnavox. In general, the post-war economy in America was really, really strong. You had all these returning soldiers who were able to take advantage of government programs to establish a new life for themselves stateside. Uh, and just to clarify, the returning white soldiers were really able to take advantage of those programs. Other soldiers, while technically being eligible for that same sort of aid, found themselves effectively excluded from taking advantage of the programs due to various policies that were, you know, when you get down to it, racist. But that's a subject for another podcast. I just feel we have to acknowledge it because if you don't acknowledge it, you are just denying something that was a very important and painful part of history. Anyway, for Magnavox the company, this meant that a return to consumer electronics came right as the demand was on the rise for them. In fact, Demand was high enough that the company decided to make another important acquisition, and this time it wasn't an electronics company. 
No, instead, Magnavox opened up a new subsidiary to build out the cabinets that would house radios. Now remember, in these days, pre-transistor radios were pretty big. Uh, Even the tabletop models were hefty, and a lot of home models were effectively full pieces of furniture, like almost like, you know, a full set of of drawers or a hutch or something. They were enormous. So your average radio consisted of electronic components that the manufacturer would then mount inside a wooden cabinet. So Magnavox opened up the Greenville Cabinet Company in Greenville, Tennessee in 1947 to design and build the cabinetry that would house Magnavox radio sets. Not only was there a strong market for radios, there was the temptation to get into another fledgling technology television. Electronic televisions predated World War II, but the war had pretty much put TV evolution on hold for several years. Magnavox joined in the TV craze after World War II, announcing in 1947 that the company would begin producing television sets. Now, at this point, Magnavox's reputation was firmly aligned with the concept of audio quality and capability, not with moving pictures. An engineer named Anthony Wright became the chief of television engineering at Magnavox, and his team got to work creating a technology the company called, of course, Magnascope. Now, interestingly, the first TV that Magnavox produced was called The Modular, which had the model name MV10, and the company introduced this first in 1948, so just a year after they announced they were going to get into the TV business. Clearly, they had already been working on it for a while before then. The Greenville Manufacturing Company provided the cabinet for the device, uh, which housed the electronics, which came out of Fort Wayne, Indiana. In, in set, in the face of this cabinet, was the MV10's screen, which you know was not huge, a little black and white screen. Uh, an ad from the time claims, quote, it provides the finest picture quality in television and sharper contrast for better visibility, end quote. That ad, by the way, was really for a record player slash radio combination. Uh, The one in the photo I'm looking at was called the Cosmopolitan. And these sets, the the radio sets that had a a phonograph player built into them, ranged in price from $179.50 all the way up to $895. And remember, we're talking like 1940s money. That, That would be truly astronomically expensive today. Uh, On top of that base price, you could add on what they called a duomatic changer. This was a a piece of of equipment that could hold up to 12 records. And so you would play a record, and when the the tone arm would get all the way to the end of the record, it would automatically lift up, go back to the beginning, uh, like the rest position, and set down. Then the machine could drop the next record onto the spindle. The tone arm would come back up, move back over and start playing the next record. So you could hold up to 12 records with this thing and it would automatically drop in the next record in the sequence. Uh, And this would only cost you a cool $275 or so. Then to have the television on top of that, that would set you back an additional $299.50 all the way up to $950. And keep in mind, this is, again, all in the 1940s. So with inflation, these prices would be truly enormous, especially if you wanted a top-of-the-line system. Some things never change, right? So the TV receiver was called the modular, not because the television itself was made up of modules. It's not like you could take the TV apart. Instead, the TV on its own was a module. 
And as the ad I alluded to hinted at, Magnavox, the company, knew that it was most associated with audio equipment. And so this company was essentially saying, hey, you could also get a television to incorporate into the audio equipment and enhance your audio equipment rather than, you know, try to create an all new marketing line dedicated solely to selling televisions. Now, I haven't found a specific source that confirms my suspicion, but I believe the MV10 did not have its own incorporated speaker system, or at least not a very robust speaker system. Instead, you would actually connect the MV10 to your Magnavox Hi-Fi audio set, and the sound would play out through the audio set. You'd have the picture on the TV, but the sound would come through the same speakers that you know the radio and phonograph were attached to. Uh, which honestly would make this one of the first home entertainment all-in-one setups that I've ever heard about. The television market, you know, the whole industry as a whole, uh, pro proved to be a profitable one. It was also a very competitive one. Magnavox would go on to establish new manufacturing facilities in Greenville, Tennessee, that primarily focused on TV production, building facility number two in 1952. Remember, the first facility was dedicated to building cabinetry for radios. And it was around this time that Frank Fryman, originally the founder of the Electroacoustics Products Company, became president of Magnavox. Fryman had an, a reputation as a real high-fidelity fanatic, and under his leadership, Magnavox would develop a strategy to make sure that each of the components it produced for its radios worked really well together. Now, that seems like a no-brainer, but hear me out. Let's say you're making various components and the components you're making are all necessary to enable something like a radio set to work, right? So it's all the parts of a radio set. Now you could treat them all as separate individual technologies. So you could make the best tuner, for example, and the best amplifier and the best loudspeaker. And on their own, when you hook them up with sensitive instruments, you can prove that they all work fantastic, that they are you know best of class. They perform well within whatever your specifications are. However, this does not necessarily mean that once you connect them all together in your radio set, that they're all going to play nice with each other. Sometimes different components can start to introduce stuff like distortion when they are connected together. And that obviously has a negative impact on the sound produced by the end product. So Fryman's directive was that the engineers had to create a more holistic system that would produce the best overall result when they all work together. And that meant that sometimes maybe the amplifier is not quite as powerful or the receiver might not be quite as sensitive as you could make it. But the end result for the customer was that you had a radio set that produced great sound. It created a way to provide the best experience on a per-dollar basis. And while there were audiophiles who were seeking out individual components in order to produce their own systems, they would have to spend a lot of time, a lot of effort, and a lot of money to do this and swap out components to find out which combination would actually provide the best experience. Magnavox was looking to create that right out of the box. And as a result, the company's reputation for hi-fi audio grew year over year. 
Freiman, by the way, he was born in Austria-Hungary in uh, 1909, but his family had moved to America when he was just nine years old. Uh, In the 1920s, he had studied the young field of radio research, and that's when he founded Electroacoustic Products in 1930. Uh, His tenure uh, as president of Magnavox began in 1950, and during that time, he would see the company reach its height as far as its reputation and revenue were concerned. He would lead Magnavox until his death in uh, in the 1960s. He, he died at the age of 63. While he was president, Freiman oversaw Magnavox's explosive growth in sales. So in 1950, the company generated $32 million in revenue. By 1967, the year before Freiman passed away, annual revenue was up to $450 million. Now, granted, revenue and profit are two different things. You've got to subtract the cost of business from your revenue before you start getting to profit. So for profit, that went from $2 million in 1950 to $30 million by 1967. So not only was he making more revenue, he was making a greater profit in in turn. So it's not like the expenses rose at the same rate as revenue did. Freiman saw a big technological advancement, a couple of them actually, while he was in charge of Magnavox. One of those was that uh, he saw the birth of color television. Uh, granted, color TV actually, the the development of it had been around for a few years, but it really emerged in the early 1950s. However, rival company RCA would have a pretty effective monopoly on that uh, color TV area first, and that was largely because There were a few different ways you could create color television. CBS initially had a lock on creating the standard, but RCA was able to push really hard to have its version adopted as the standard. Um, You know, the only reason why CBS's didn't take hold was because the Korean War put everything on standby for a while. But I've covered that story before in my series about RCA. And it's a heck of a story. If you are curious about how RCA and CBS battled it out to try and determine what standard would be used for color television, you should check out those series. It's a heck of a story. It has elements of political intrigue as well as technical evolution. But anyway, RCA eventually won out. And other TV manufacturers had to figure out how to make color TVs without violating RCA's patents, or they would have to you know, pay a licensing fee to RCA in order to create their own technologies, which of course drives up production costs. So while color TV essentially launched in the US in the early 1950s, Magnavox didn't really get into the color TV space until the early 1960s. However, another big jump in tech came in the form of the transistor. Just as the vacuum tube had revolutionized electronics decades earlier, the transistor would really shake things up. We'll talk about it a little bit more after we take this quick break. So the transistor emerged out of Bell Labs in the late 1940s, but early transistors were large and unfit for practical application. They were more of a proof of concept. Uh, And they proved that it was possible to create an amplifier or switch using semiconductor material rather than a vacuum tube. And over time, engineers figured out how to reduce the size of the original transistors so that they were small, much, much smaller than vacuum tubes, and they would emit less heat as well. Uh, And they also weren't quite as delicate as vacuum tubes were. You know, if you were carrying a case of vacuum tubes and they dropped, uh, you might end up shattering all of them. 
Transistors were a little bit more sturdy than that. So transistors can do the same job as a vacuum tube amplifier. Uh, that is, they can take an incoming weak electric signal, and then they can boost the strength of that so that it comes out greater than the way it came in. And the way it does this is a little different from a vacuum tube, but the basic principle is the same. So you've got a weak signal going into the transistor, you apply voltage to another part of the transistor, and this induces a stronger output signal. So you are having to put energy into a transistor to make this happen. It's not like you've got a magical switch that just takes a, a weak signal and boosts it into a strong signal without you having to do anything. But you didn't need big, bulky, hot vacuum tubes in your giant radio set cabinet in order to amplify a signal so that it could drive loudspeakers. So it was possible for transistors to do that job, which meant you could miniaturize the design of the overall product without compromising on the end user experience. So Magnavox produced its first all-transistor radio in 1957. It cost $79.95. Now, I did go ahead and run that through the inflation calculator just to see how much it would cost today if it were at the same, you know, cost level. So brace yourselves, because that $80-ish transistor radio would set you back more than $780 bucks today. $780 for a transistor radio. That means the inflation between 1957 and today, it, mean, it means that a dollar today is worth about a tenth of what it was worth back then. Yowza. Anyway, the price tag probably drives home the fact that these electronics were adopted really by people who were well off, right? The average person could not afford to buy these sorts of things. Now, that is largely always been the case, particularly in the world of consumer electronics. Uh, we see new technology hit consumer shelves, and when it first debuts, it is exorbitantly expensive. Like, we saw that with HD TVs, we saw it with DVD players, we saw it with Blu-ray players. Uh, we're seeing it now with OLED screens. But then, eventually, manufacturers, once they see that there's a demand for these technologies invest in more ways to make the manufacturing process more efficient and less expensive, and the cost starts to come down and becomes more accessible to the average consumer. Um, we would see this happen a lot more frequently today if it weren't for the fact that obsolescence is a really big thing. It drives a near constant cycle of new tech that drives up prices. So while the televisions five years from now should be less expensive, they're going to have new features we don't even think about right now that will drive those prices up even more. Whether we want those new features or not, that remains to be seen. I mean, we saw that with 3D televisions. That was a big failure. I'm, I'm getting off track. Let's get back to Magnavox. So in 1958, the company produced its first hi-fi stereo system. So up to that point, uh, the sets that Magnavox were selling were mono. That is, each speaker in the system was getting the same output signal. So even if you had multiple speakers attached to your system, they were all playing the exact same sound, right? The sound in the left channel and the sound in the right channel, there's no such thing. There, It's the same channel going to two speakers and the sound is identical. Stereo allowed for left and right channels independent of each other. So you could have some sounds coming out of one speaker and other sounds coming out of the other, or maybe it's really loud in one speaker and softer in the other. I've done a whole episode on the history of stereo sound. Uh, the history of stereo sound dates much further back, by the way. But it took a while for artists to really embrace stereo, particularly in, in genres like rock and roll. 
That's because a lot of artists knew that their fans were relying on older mono sets. So they were more interested in developing uh, records that were really engineered for mono sets, not for stereo sets. The Beatles famously would spend countless hours in the studio engineering their mono recordings, but they would leave the stereo recordings to other people because they knew most of their fans were using mono sound systems. Well, in 1963, Magnavox built a third manufacturing facility in Greenville, Tennessee. It was, at the time, the largest TV manufacturing facility under one roof in the United States. And for the following years, Magnavox continued to produce stereo systems and televisions, and it also developed plasma panels for the military. So a plasma display is just pretty cool technology. So for a while, plasma displays were really competitive with LED screens, uh, largely because plasma displays have a much better contrast ratio, uh, which would be the difference and, and the number of differences between the darkest colors you can display and the brightest colors you can display. So with LED screens, essentially every section of the screen has a backlight behind it. So even if you're watching something that has a lot of dark colors in it, there's a backlight and some of that light bleeds through the screen. So the darkest colors, like like black, might come out more like a charcoal gray. But plasma is different. Each pixel, each point of light in the panel, has a little bit of gas in a cell that represents that pixel. And the controller sends an electric current to the cells that are associated with a picture. Let's say you're just showing a, the, the letter A on screen. Well, the cells that make up that letter A will get current sent to them, and the current excites a gas, something like mercury vapor. And when mercury vapor gets excited, uh, its electrons jump to higher energy levels. Those electrons have to come back down, but in order to come back down, they have to release that energy. They do that in the form of ultraviolet radiation. Well, we can't see ultraviolet light. However, if we pair that mercury vapor with, say, certain noble gases, then the ultraviolet light will stimulate those gases to release energy in the form of visible light. So if you were to look at a color plasma display, like a color plasma television, every single pixel that represents a point of light on that display has three subpixels. There's one for red, one for green, and one for blue. And by timing out the electric pulses going to these subpixels and selectively choosing which subpixels need to fire, a plasma display can create images of lots of different colors. Now, in the early panels of the 1960s, we're talking monochromatic displays. So we didn't have to worry about the sub-pixel part. Uh, they were expensive. Uh, they were generally reserved for stuff like military use. And eventually, plasma televisions would come on the scene for consumers much, much, much later. Uh, they would struggle to be profitable because other types of televisions would ultimately win out and manufacturers would drop out of plasma TV production. Uh, there's some other issues that plasma displays have, but that's not really important for this episode, so we're going to move on. Now, we're running up to the end of our story here, and I already talked a bit about Ralph Bayer and Bill Harrison and Bill Rush in some recent episodes I did, or an episode I did about the 1983 video game crash. So these three guys, working for a company called Sanders Associates Incorporated, developed a video game console that could play an electronic version of table tennis. Uh, there were also some other programs that the machine could run. It was a limited number because it was hardwired to play a certain number of games. Uh, there was a checkers game. There was a game that used a very early light gun. Uh, the detector for the light is built in the gun itself. 
so the gun can tell if it's pointed toward the pixels that are should be created on a display. Uh, the Bayer's thought was that he could create a, a system that would give people the chance to play games on their TVs. So by the late 1960s, TV prices had declined enough so that the average family could afford one, and this would give more functionality to the television. Sanders Associates shopped this idea around because, you know, they weren't going to make it. They just wanted to, you know, license the idea to someone else, and Magnavox was interested. So in the early 1970s, Magnavox entered into a licensing agreement with Sanders Associates for the Brown Box. That was the nickname given to Bayer's invention. He had covered it with vinyl tape that had a wood grain pattern on it in order to make it a little more attractive and not look like, you know, a big metal box with switches and knobs on it. Magnavox would design a new console to house the electronics and introduce the device as the Magnavox Odyssey in 1972, the first home video game console. It had a handful of programs that were coded into the console itself, and you would activate it by putting in a what they called game cards, the sort of a predecessor for cartridges. And the game cards completed circuits that would allow the console to play a specific game. Uh, it was different from later video game consoles. You couldn't like program a new game for this to run. It was a, a limited number of predetermined games that this would run. So you couldn't build Pac-Man for the Magnavox Odyssey, in other words. So the Odyssey could only display very blocky graphics, and it could only display monochromatic graphics, so black and white. To compensate for that limitation, Magnavox also produced color screen overlays. So it was like a plastic overlay that had uh, color in specific spots on there, and you would slap that onto your TV screen, and thus the light coming from the TV screen would show through this clear plastic, and you would get quote-unquote color graphics. Pretty low-tech workaround for the limitations of the device. Well, the Odyssey ended up being a modest success. Uh, Magnavox sold a few hundred thousand units, but that would be later dwarfed by other video game consoles that would enter the market later in the 70s and into the 80s. In 1974, Philips, the electronics company based in the Netherlands, made an offer that Magnavox couldn't refuse. So Philips was looking to establish a foothold in America, primarily as a way of creating a distribution network for Philips products. Uh, Magnavox would become a subsidiary of Philips. While Magnavox would continue producing products, it was doing so under the direction of Philips with the goal of pushing Philips-based technologies. So Magnavox did play a part in certain Philips products, like the manufacture and distribution of the LaserDisc format, uh, but the division didn't do a whole lot more. They did make some home pinball machines in the late 1970s. That's kind of cool. But that was pretty much the end of Magnavox, the company. It still existed as a brand. So Magnavox, the brand was still a thing. But that was something that Philips would sometimes slap on certain products because the the brand recognition was important in the American market. Also, Today, around the world, there are different companies that own the rights to the Magnavox brand in those specific regions, which means you could buy two different products. Each of them have the Magnavox logo on them. You buy one in one part of the world, you buy another one in the other part of the world. And ultimately, they were made by two unconnected, different, independent companies, right? They have no connection to each other, apart from the fact that they each have the regional rights to use the Magnavox brand. So we don't really have a Magnavox company anymore. But it was really fun tracking down the history of Magnavox and talking about its role 
in the consumer electronics uh, uh, industry, particularly in the United States. If you have suggestions for topics I should cover on Tech Stuff, whether it's another company or a specific technology or a trend in tech, anything like that, let me know. The best way to do that is on Twitter. The handle we use is TechStuffHSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.